Now, for those of you who are showing up, uh, we're in the middle of our survey of John's letter to the churches in Ephesus. He's left Jerusalem, most likely because of the invasion by the Romans and being forced to flee. And so now he's in this area of Ephesus. We believe he's there. And uh, he's writing to the churches in Ephesus. And, and by way of reminder of what we've been looking at, we've been looking at what it means to be loved by God. In a sense, finding love in this broken world. True love, that can only come from loving God. And in turn, it's not just that we experience God's love just personally in a vacuum, solely for ourselves, but the point and purpose of experiencing God's love is to in turn live out His love in our lives. And if you've noticed a dominant theme in this letter of John, it is love. He talks about it like crazy. And it's the dominant theme that's woven throughout his whole letter. And in fact, all of these other sub-themes and subplots of this letter are attached to love in some way or another. Last week, we talked a little bit about abiding in God. Well, you can only abide in God so much as you live in his love and live out his love. Your forgiveness of sins is because of God's motivation of love towards you. It's all because of love. Now, last week, we looked at the type of actions that we should engage in as followers of Jesus Christ as a result of us personally experiencing his self-giving love for us. Last week, I spoke of our need to practice righteousness and how when we do the kinds of things that God wants us to do, we can have confidence in our relationship with him and the future that is waiting for us. To be honest, if I could have a mulligan, y'all know what a mulligan is, right? Your golfers. If I could have a do-over, if you would, I would tell you that the big idea of last week's message is this, and it'll be up on the screen for you. So if you want to go and revise your notes is, you become what you practice. You become what you practice. If you practice righteousness, you become more righteous. If you practice lawlessness, you become more of a lawbreaker. That's not to say that you have to work for your salvation. The Bible is emphatically clear that salvation is a free gift to anyone who would say yes to Jesus Christ, who would believe that Christ died on the cross personally for them, that he was buried in a tomb and was raised three days later from the dead as a sign of victory over death and as a promise of eternal life to come for those who believe. That is a free gift. You do nothing to earn it. He offers it to you freely if you just choose to believe that Jesus did all of the work for you. How awesome is that? Amen. Those of you who've watched The Good Place, bad theology, okay? You do not have to somehow have the divine scales tipped in your favor. There are no divine scales because you would lose every single time, okay? It is a free gift. However, the axiom Practice what you preach is quite true in our lives. The more we act, the more we speak like Jesus, the more like Jesus we become. It's not that we become God. It's that we start to look like him and sound like him and act like him and do the things that he does. And, 
And when we do that, people see not just us, but they see the God that lives inside of this. The point is this, friends. It matters very much how you live your life in as much as it is important what you believe about Jesus. The two are very important. And as you live your life practicing righteousness, your relationship, you become more confident in your relationship with God as you make a habit of practicing as Jesus did. That was the message of last week. And today's message dovetails in that. Today we're going to continue on this idea of what it means to live out God's love in our own life and for others. Now, as I've said many times before, God didn't send Jesus to die on the cross so we could just continue to live life like we did before we believed in him. If that was true, then Jesus would have died for nothing, right? If Jesus died to save us from our sins, then he died so that we could live to something else. If he didn't come to die for our sins, then it would be pointless for him to come and die in the first place. Part of the responsibility that we now have as his kids is to love others in the same way or in similar ways. Another way of looking at this is that God wants to demonstrate his love for our world through each one of us sitting here today. Why he chooses to use a guy like me I will never know, friends. I will never know. Thank you, brother. Love you. That's my brother Jake back there. He he's, keeps me grounded. Thanks. It's true. I don't know why God lo- uses me, but he does. And I am so thankful for it. His plan A and his only plan A, there is no B, C, D, all the way through the letters and on. His only plan is to demonstrate his love for our world through his children. But it all starts first in how we love each other. It starts in the family of God with us as brothers and sisters in Christ. If we cannot love each other, how can we hope that our world is going to experience God's love? So we have a a task today, friends, is to, to find out what God has to say about how we are to love one another. So would you please stand with me if you are able If you're not able, it's okay. God knows you're standing in your heart and it's absolutely fine. Nobody's gonna look at you any different. But if you're able to stand as a way to honor God's word, we're gonna read 1 John chapter three, verses 11 through 24. John, continuing in his letter, says, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. Verse 19, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Friends, this is the word of the God given to John for you and I today. Would you please have a seat? Now, as I read this part of John's letter over and over again this past week, I noticed that there are kind of three main sections that speak about the results or the things that happen when we begin to love like God. The, the first section, found in verses 11 through 15, they speak about conflict, and we'll unpack that in a moment. I know you guys are excited to hear about this conflict, because we all love conflict, right? No, but we get it. We're going to talk about it. Now, the second section is found in verses 16 through 18, and, and they speak about sacrifice. We love sacrificing, don't we? No, we don't, but we're going to talk about it. And the third section is found in verses 19 through 24, and they speak about confidence. And we're confident all the time, aren't we? No, we're going to talk about it. Let's look at the first section. John starts off this part of his letter by giving us an example of the opposite of what it means to love others. Don't you love the opposite game? Looking at what we should do by looking at what we shouldn't do, sometimes that contrast is quite helpful, and it is quite helpful. Now, you see, John uses the example of Cain. Raise your hand if you know who Cain is in the Bible. Not sugar cane, okay, but Cain. That was an attempt at a joke. Nobody's laughing. Moving on. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story of Cain and his brother Abel, you can read about it in the very first book of the Bible. Just go to the very beginning. It's probably on page like five or something like that. It is the book of Genesis or the book of beginnings, chapter four is where you can find the story. But to summarize, here's what's happened in human history. Adam and Eve... They were put in the garden by God. They were created innocent. And things went great until they disobeyed God and ate of the fruit that was forbidden. It wasn't an apple. We don't know what it was, but they were told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they disobeyed. And through their disobedience, sin entered into our world. And the result of this sin was that now every human being to be born of Adam and Eve in their broken state is created with a sin nature. That is, without God doing anything, we would choose sin every time. We are bent on ourselves. That's what it means. Sin means to be bent or to be turned in on yourself. We are bent and broken uh, sinners. 
So it's not surprising that immediately the first human family is a dysfunctional one. Right? That should cause you to breathe a little bit. If your family's dysfunctional, welcome to the human race. You're just like the rest of us. Now, one day, Cain and Abel, they bring sacrifices to God, but God rejects Cain's and accepts Abel's. Now, instead of doing what is right, Cain gets this great plan. I'm just going to murder my brother. Sounds rational, right? No, not at all. Not at all right. There's a lot to unpack about the story of Cain and Abel, and we hope to do so here in the near future. But to cut to the chase, John tells us that the reason that Cain acted in this way was because he was not a follower of God, but a follower of the evil one. And if we reference what we learned about last week, he practiced lawlessness, friends. He was, he was just naturally doing what he had taught himself to do. Break the law, be a bad person, follow the evil one. And the end result of his lawlessness was that it led to murder of his brother. It started in his heart, developed a plan in his head, and then moved into action through his hands, and he actually killed his brother Abel. Now, the point that John wants you and I to know by leading off with this example of Cain is that this, and take notes, is that loving like God will create conflict in your life. Loving like God will create conflict in your life. Practicing righteousness will result in tension with lawbreakers. It's just a natural part of the world that we live in. In the story of Cain and Abel, it was Abel who demonstrated faithfulness to God by practicing righteousness. Another way of understanding it is Abel loved God in the same ways or similar ways that God loved him. Abel knew that God is a generous, a merciful, gracious, and compassionate God. And so the Bible tells us that Abel gave back to God a good portion of the best that he had to offer. It was because of God's generosity and his generous love towards Abel that Abel is motivated to be generous and back to God. But that created conflict in his brother Cain. He saw how God responded to righteousness in Abel's life, and instead of doing what is right, he gave in to sin and murdered his brother. John doesn't want you and I to be ignorant or delusional to think that when we love perfectly like Jesus is, like Jesus does, that life is somehow going to be sunshine and rainbows every day. There is a false theology out there that says, if you do what is right, that blessings naturally always will flow and you'll have not a care in the world. I'm sorry, but that is not the story of the scriptures. In verses 13 and 14, John warns us, and it's going to be up on the screen again, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Maybe we should retranslate and it says, when the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life. We live 
by a different set of standards. We live in a different economy because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love abides or remains in death. Have you guys picked up that this idea of loving like God is a big deal? It's a very big deal. Now, one of my favorite activities in the summertime when I was young was to ride my bike to the local swimming pool. Now, I went there so much that I looked like I belonged on the beaches of California and not on an island in the middle of the Puget Sound. Okay, friends? I was really tanned, and I had bleach blonde hair from all the pool chemicals. That's how much I was in the pool during the summertime. Now, I remember playing a ton of pool games and generally horsing around with my friends. And one of the things about young adolescent boys that you have to remember that you need to know is the mischief that we can quickly find ourselves in, right? You don't have to teach us to misbehave. It comes natural. Now, inevitably, our horsing around would disintegrate into trying to toss each other into the deep end of the pool, whether we were good at swimming or not. Now, being the scrawny little dude that I was, I know that would never surprise you, being a scrawny little dude, but I knew that I was never going to escape my bigger friends. Didn't matter how fast I was, the pool was only so big, there's more of them than me. So instead of fighting it, because I knew what was inevitable, I was getting tossed in, I made it my point to take as many of them in with me as I could. If I'm going down, I'm bringing you in with me. Now, the enemy of the world hates that God loves you as much as he does. And the enemy of this world knows that his days are numbered. He thought he had victory when he killed Jesus on the cross, but three days later, he rose from the dead. And I could just see him go, no, it didn't work. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. And like a delinquent adolescent, he wants to take as many of us down with him as possible. And those like Cain, who have not given their lives over to Jesus Christ to save them. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ follow in the footsteps of the evil one. Now, they may not say that they hate you, but the inner spiritual motivations of their heart are in fact against you. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone who just does not get it and they look at you like you are out to lunch? Right? It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen? Amen. The default operating system of the world is eye for an eye. Dog eat dog and any other selfishly motivated bumper sticker you can come up with. But when we love like God, it goes against the way the world operates. So when you love like God, it's going to create conflict, even with those who share the same last name as you or in the same family tree. When you forgive people that sinners think shouldn't be forgiven, it's going to create conflict at Thanksgiving. When you give away things that other people think they should have, it's going to create conflict. 
loving like God, living out his love in your life, is abrasive to those who don't get it, to those who are perishing. But not only does loving like God create conflict, friends, for those of you who are taking notes, write this down, loving like God takes sacrifice. Ooh, we love that word, right? If Cain is an example of those who practice lawlessness and creating conflict with those of us loving like God, John uses Jesus as the example of how we are to love like God. He says this is how we know what love is in verse 16. Jesus Christ didn't do a thing for us. No, it says Jesus Christ laid down his life. Laid down his life. John tells us that we are only able to know what true love looks like is because it looks like Jesus sacrificing himself. And this is not merely an analogy, but Jesus, literally. I know we use that word a lot. But Jesus literally gave up his life for us. Elsewhere in the Bible, we are told that God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, while we were in direct rebellion against the ruler of heaven, the creator of the cosmos, the king of kings. Do I need to give you more titles? While we were in rebellion against him, he sent his son Jesus to die for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. And our own acts of love, John tells us, should parallel that of Jesus Christ. Now, while we may never have to literally die for our faith in Jesus, though some in the world still do to this day, we nonetheless should be sacrificial in our love towards others. Now, thankfully, John doesn't leave this up for us to interpret on our own. He gives us some practical understanding in this. You see, in verses uh, 17 and 18, John clearly tells us what kind of sacrifices we should make. We must sacrifice our material possessions, my friends. The delusion of the American dream is that life is all about accumulating more stuff so we can become more comfortable for ourselves. I am not against being a millionaire. It's actually one of my dreams. My friends, I know that sounds awkward, but I want, and I, I'm reading right now Chris Hogan's Everyday Millionaire, and I'm teaching finan financial peace peeps. Woo! I'm teaching people how to win with their money. Charlene, got you right there, sister. Woo! Right? I, I want to be a millionaire, not so I can have a Mercedes Benz, not so I can go on fancy vacations, but so I can bless people in ways that I cannot bless people right now. Because you know what? I have some debt in my life. I've got some people I have to pay in order to free up some money so I can go and bless other people. Now, I do bless other people in other ways. But friends, let me just say this. That God doesn't just give you stuff to make your life better. He does give you stuff to make your life better, but as he's making your life better, he wants you to make other people's lives better. He told Abraham, I bless you so you can be a blessing to other people. There's a story, there's a parable in the Gospels of a farmer who has a, a, a bumper crop, right? Uh, that's the term for it. For, it's just more corn than he can 
farm. I don't know if they have corn, whatever they, they farm, right? It's just more than he can imagine or think of or plan for. And instead of saying, hey, I've got more than I need. Let me give this stuff away. He says, I need to build a, build a bigger barn. So he goes and builds a bigger barn and he puts all the harvest in there and then he dies. He doesn't even get to share it or bless people with it. He leaves it for other people to enjoy. Now, friends, you can hoard your treasures if you want, but someday you will die and someone else will take what you have and use it. Or, or you can be better with your stuff, steward it better, and, let, and see how God uses it to bless others. One way you don't get to see anything. The other way, you get to see and participate in it. It is better to give than to receive, the scriptures tell us. Now, friends, I will tell you this. It's not about how much you have in your bank account. Some of you have more, some of you have less. John says your material possessions. Some of you can babysit for a couple that needs to go out on a date night and just needs a break. My sister Sasha, seriously, seriously. Friends, if you don't know who Sasha is, if you don't know who Jordan and Luda are, if you don't know who Amy Danner is, if you don't know who Kevin Holmes is, a single dad, if you don't know who Doug and Bettina Spencer are, and, and if I've missed you, I'm sorry. I'm, it's just to speed things along. These are couples, people, individuals in our church that are raising children I need some of you who have time that can help. Time is a possession that we all have. It's a commodity that we all get equal amount of. Whether you're a millionaire or you're in a debt in air, whatever that looks like, right? <laughs> you like? Okay, good. Thanks. Well, you're warming up. You're warming up. The point is some of you have a tool that you can loan to someone. Some of you, I have your tools. I need to give them back to you. But some of you have tools that you can loan to people. Give them back. Some of you, I know you already do this. You're great at driving people to their doctor's appointments. You have transportation. You can help. Some of you can mow a lawn. Some of you can clean a house. You've done it to mine. Thank you very much. Friends, we have all things that we can do for our brothers and sisters. Now, John says this, if you see someone who has a need and you do not take pity on them, shame on you. The love of God does not live in you. Let me clarify what he means. First, it starts in the family of God, okay? I don't think in, this, in, in his understanding he says that you personally, Dana, Dana, sorry, Dana, you personally, Sarah, you personally out there in the pew, you personally have to solve everybody's needs. That's not what he's saying at all. But he's saying if you know of someone who has a need, if you know, if you see that someone has a need in the family of God and you have the material possession to provide it and you withhold it, that is not a good thing. Now, I don't like the way our NIV translated it. In verse 17, it says, and you don't have pity on them. It sounds like we are... Let me throw a pity party for that individual. 
that's not the, that's, I, I don't like that language because pity has a negative connotation. I mean, still negative. It's not the right word. Not the right word at all. Rather, the, the more literal translation that says, if you see someone who has need and you have the material possessions to provide that need and you don't, you close your heart against that person. You're playing against them is what it means. You're not treating them like a family member. You're treating them like an enemy is what the, the, the kind of the meaning behind the language. And so regardless of what your bank account is, regardless of what you have, if you see that someone has need, if you know of it, if you hear it, it is your responsibility, first and foremost, individually to provide that. Now, here's the other cool thing about being an individual, a brother or a sister, a part of God's family here at Glenfer Family Church. We also pool our resources together because it is also our responsibility to help as a church family, especially with some of those bigger needs. And so we plan in our budget year over year benevolence requests. If you find yourself in a financial situation and you need some assistance and you've gone to your biological family and they're unable to provide, you've done all that you can to provide and you just need some help, you come and talk to me and we will find a way to help you. Because that's what it means to be a part of this. But here's the caveat. You have to know each other. It doesn't work if you don't know each other. So I'm going to put a challenge to you right now. If you are a senior and you haven't met one of these younger couples and you haven't invited them over to dinner, do so before Thanksgiving. I'm issuing you a challenge. Do so before Thanksgiving. Younger people, if you haven't met an older person or an older couple in this church, you don't know their name and you haven't invited them over to dinner, do so before Thanksgiving. How do you like them apples? Friends, it is not just my responsibility as the shepherd to know all of you. It is my responsibility as your shepherd to do my best to get to know all of you. I am not shirking my responsibility. But friends, we're a family. And it's your responsibility as well to get to know each other. To not just put that burden solely upon me. We get to share together. Together in this ministry. Let us not close our hearts against one another. Friends, loving like God takes sacrifice. It will cost you. It's going to hurt. You may not be able to go to Disneyland this year. Now, let me say this uh, as a caveat too, okay? I do not like talking about money. I don't like talking about it. But God, you tie God's hands in doing things for people by getting yourself into debt. God has so much more to do in your life personally and to use you to do in other people's lives personally, but he can't because of debt. The scriptures say the borrower is slave to the lender. And oh my gosh, imagine for a moment, everybody close your eyes. Imagine for a moment you had zero debt. You know what that dollar amount is in your heart, round up or round down, whatever, you know it. 
Imagine what you could do in other people's lives. Imagine the type of freedom that would be found in your life if you did not have that debt right now. If you learned how to steward the material possessions that God has entrusted to you, imagine what you could do. God will not give you more if you can't handle what he's already given you already. He doesn't do that. Now, let me tell you this. If you've never been taught how to manage finances, there, go to Financial Peace University. Come this Tuesday night at 6 p.m. 6 p.m. Even though we're like almost over halfway through it, come find out what it is. You don't have to do Dave Ramsey. You don't have to do Financial Peace. There's tons of other things. You don't have to do that thing. If you've never been taught how to budget, if you've never been taught how to live within your means, come talk to me. Go get help. Read a book. Take a class. Do something. But there's greater opportunities for you to just bless the socks off of people and have God bless your socks off when you find freedom and not being a slave to the lender. I'm just going to, okay, moving on. It wasn't even in my notes. That's just bonus. Take that. Enjoy. All right. Now, finally, the last section in verses 19 through 24 teach us that loving like God results in confidence. Loving like God results in confidence. Now, to be transparent with you, verses 19 through 21 are a bit tricky for me to understand, okay? I've wrestled with them throughout this whole week. I'm like, John, what are you trying to say? Because the grammar isn't easy. Now, one of the reasons for this difficulty that I have is I'm taught that the scriptures say that our heart is not to be trusted. It is deceptive above all else and beyond cure. Anybody remember that verse, right? It's because our hearts, when, when we lead our hearts, when we check our brain and the Holy Spirit at the door, our hearts are easily, easily corruptible. But here John says that it is our heart that either condemns or confirms us. And then I wrestle that with what Paul said, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What are you saying, guys? Help me here. Now, the best way I've been able to find to reconcile this is that for those of us who have said yes to following Christ, he doesn't cure our heart. He gives us a new one. He does a heart transplant. Now, because of Christ, I can have right motivations and right emotions. But friends, the heart is still easily swayed. Anybody find that to be true? Yes. But as long as I'm practicing righteousness, or as John put it in verse 22, if I obey God's commands and do what pleases him, then my heart is confident that I'm living in God's love and I'm able to love like God. But if I don't do what is right, and friends, even as a pastor, there are times where I don't do what is right. Then my confidence becomes shaky and my heart will condemn me. But it's not in the same way. It's, it's not that I'm afraid of going to hell, but it's know that there's something not right in my life. That I'm doing things that endanger my holiness and my health. So then my confidence, your confidence, is tied to our obedience or practicing our righteousness. Now here's the kicker. Verse 20 says this, 
that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. This can either put us at ease or make us more paranoid, depending on how you understand what John is saying, right? Friends, what you think you're doing in secret, you can't hide from God. The news is full of stories and headlines of people who thought that their lives were secret and hidden, and God, in his love, says, no, I'm going to make it be found out by everyone. Now, the goal, hopefully for you, is for it not to become a headline or front page on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or any of those things, all right? Now, what I've learned this week is that the meaning behind this verse, behind this section of verses, is that God is not mean. God's not mean like we can be. He's not like us when we get cut off on the road where we really want to do some things that we can't talk about in church because we're too civilized, right? When our hearts condemn us for not loving like God loves us, we don't have to be afraid of God getting even with us. That's what he's saying here. This should bring us the kind of rest that John is getting at when he says that we can set our hearts at rest. We can be reassured that when we make a mistake and our hearts condemn us, that God won't press the smite button. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. God is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding and loving faithfulness. His love and mercy, grace and compassion far exceeds his justice. And when you make a mistake and you mess up, and oh, friends, you will, God sees it, but you don't need to be paranoid about it as long as you take it to him. You be transparent and honest with him and you repent and you confess it just as John wrote in John chapter one that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. And so friends, loving like God results in confidence in our lives that we're good before God, that he still loves us, still loves us. Now, as we close our message today, the point of this part of John's letter, I believe, is to teach us that being loved by God results in us loving like God. That the the goal of experiencing God's love for ourselves is that we will give it away and love the world like he loves the world. But friends, know that it's, there's going to be some conflict as you do this. It's okay. Be okay with it. Take a deep breath. There's going to be some conflict. But it's also going to cost you some stuff. You're going to have to sacrifice your material possessions if you want to love like God loves you. And as you do that, when you make a mistake, you can be confident because God's not mean. He doesn't press this. But he lovingly corrects you back into his love because he wants you to love have you found out that it's about his love yet? So I hope as you experience God's love that you will in turn love other people and oh, by the way, start with, his, start with the family of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a lot of eating to do between now and Thanksgiving. You have a lot of people you need to get to know. I'm sure Stuart would love to have a place to go and eat, be invited into someone's home. I know Aiden, 
And the girls, you guys like to eat, right? What youth does not like to eat? Who does not like eating? You got a lot of eating to do, friend. But let, as you eat, as you share a meal, as you share the table, let that motivate you to being even more creative in your expressions of love. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much that we get to love others because you first loved us. That you took the first step, that, that your love motivated to send your son on the cross to die in our place for us, for our sins, so that we might experience true life. So Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would challenge each and every single one of us oh, to be more creative, to be more intentional in loving one another. That God, we wouldn't be afraid to do it. Father, we would start by loving someone in this room today. And we'd start by loving someone, a part of our church family, who didn't make it today. That we'd find tangible ways, tangible expressions, not just words, but with deeds and with truth to love one another. Because God, it is what you did for us and how it's your plan. Your plan for this world to demonstrate your love through us as we love others. So God, help us to do that this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.